welcome. You're listening to the Green Majority here on CIUT. I think. Is this CIUT, Stephanie? I'm pretty sure this is CIUT, yeah. Cool. Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, and we're uh, currently live. I will skip my weekly joking about time dilation uh, for this week uh, and get right down to the content. So we're going to talk about, we actually have two, an interview and a half, if you will, today. Right. Uh, the primary interview is going to be um, uh, with a company called TerraCycle. We have Jessica Panetta here uh, with us today. And what TerraCycle does is, uh, and it, it's something I'm interested in because it's something that I, that I know very, I actually understand to a very shallow degree. My depth <laughs> of knowledge is very shallow. Right. Uh, and that's like recycling stuff. Uh, I learned a lot. We did an interview with the city of Toronto about two years ago where I learned a lot about municipal recycling programs. But Jessica's going to come on and talk to us about uh, more of a commercial side. They kind of do, um, she had a better way of explaining it, but it was essentially a bit more business to business. And they're, they're filling in the gaps in municipal systems or dealing with waste there where there's a large volume of a single type of waste from a business. So uh, an example could be like disposable gloves from a doctor's office or something like mm. that. Um, and they find ways to repurpose and reuse that, things that would be otherwise unrecyclable. So I'm very excited to talk about that that will be in the middle section uh, late, uh, later in the show as well we also have a bit of news mixed with uh, a friend of mine who's going to come on and talk about uh, an event that she's doing now your ears may be burning Stefan because you know that we generally have a rule here where we don't promote local events so what's the exception true. the exception is that I'm hosting the event ah great which Jen knows the secret of the way to break that rule is, the, is, is just to invite me to help you <laughs> right, host it. Right, yeah, there you go. Um, so I'm very excited to talk about that. Uh, I won't kill too much of that. I want to let Jen uh, build the, um, the the excitement on that, but that will be coming up later as well. Starting right now, Stefan, you're going to lead us on news, and due to scheduling and whatnot, I actually have no idea what you're going to talk about. So please uh, inform me as well as the listeners. All right. Uh, good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, good evening, or good night. Uh, that's a reference that dates me for sure. Uh, <laughs> although, then in saying that, also probably then will make annoy people who are older than me and be like, I was 40 when that movie came out, uh, which is also fair. Um, <laughs> Thanks for annoying everyone. Exa exactly. And literally, unless you are exactly, you know, if you are 29 years old, you are appreciated uh, all of that commentary. Uh, but if you're, if you're younger... Uh, I appreciate the next commentary because I have a story about about kids, and the kids are in the news these days. Mm -hmm. uh, those I feel like it's been overused, but the number of times I feel like current society probably in twenty years will get its mask ripped off, and, and, and you just picture Rex Tillerson saying something along the lines of like, "We would have gotten away with it if those meddling kids." <laughs> uh, is is sort of is sort of what I feel like. Um, so this is actually it's a lawsuit. It's a federal lawsuit from Our Children's Trust. Uh, and and Eugene, Oregon is where the sort of the, that's the sort of largely where it started. And it's uh, after nearly two and a half years of proceedings, the first ever constitutional climate trial is about to go ahead. So this is a this is a trial uh, that. Uh, on March 9th, so just a couple days ago, a unanimous three-judge Ninth Circuit panel rejected an attempt by the U.S. government to dismiss uh, this lawsuit that's filed by Our Children's Trust over the government's failure to curtail emissions. Uh, and, yeah, so this is, this is a climate change-related uh, um, lawsuit. Uh, mm -hmm. You might remember it's similar similar somewhat, uh, though, of course, the because of how laws work in every different country, uh, each system is different, but... Obviously, there has been a history of, and there's a, in the past, other countries have been uh, have been known to have their citizens sue the government to get action on climate change. The most, uh, the one that you might have heard on this show was that uh, the Dutch court uh, actually ordered the ordered the state of, of uh, to to reduce emissions by 25 percent within five years um, due to climate change, and that was a lawsuit as well that that sort of got that forward. And so, but this is the first one ever in uh, in the United States. 
Mm-hmm. And and basically, the, the way it works is that uh, the, the exact quote from Autism's Trust is that the 21 plaintiffs assert that the U.S. government, through its affirmative actions in creating national energy system that causes climate change, has violated their constitutional rights to life, liberty, and property, uh, and has failed to protect essential public trust resources. Uh, and that the youth plaintiffs will seek systematic, syst- science-based climate recovery action by our federal government. And so, uh, and so our Children's Trust provides legal help uh, to youth who want to sue the government for exacerbating the deterioration of the climate system. And so these folks are, are largely uh, from, uh, from Oregon, uh, but, but not all of them. Uh, and and I, I really love this quote from one of them, uh, and, and Kieran Uman, one of the plaintiffs from Seattle, uh, has a quote that says, the question of the last few years has not been, do we have a case, but rather, how far will the federal government go to prevent justice? Uh, but not even the Trump's administration can go far enough to escape the inevitable tide of social progress. The Ninth and the Ninth Circuit's decision affirms we are on the side of justice and for justice and are moving forward. Now, what's interesting about that statement is I, I almost want to like while I, 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 I you know given you want to give them opportunity to be excited and stoked about themselves for moving forward, I almost have a larger question, which mm. is it's not just whether or not this question isn't whether or not the how far the federal government will go to prevent justice for these for these kids. Mm. The question I have is how far the entire system we've created will go to, to prevent justice for these kids because in my mind, what's interesting about this case is it on, debated on scientific grounds overwhelmingly climate change exists and overwhelmingly we're not doing enough it's like if, if this was most other if this was if, if, if this was asking for less systemic change i think we'd see this is an open shut case right now if this was something like you know if this is a smaller if this is if you just sort of scaled this down a little bit so you weren't asking for so much if you weren't dealing with so many like so many high powered players then i would say that in reality this is an easy this is a slam dunk Right, mm-hmm. like the science has been. N- what other case has thirty years, forty years of science backed up on saying, "Look, we are doing this. We know how, everything about it." Like, the, like beyond reasonable doubt is 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 largely done here, and that's not even the beyond reasonable doubt. Actually, is not even for civil cases. You only have, you're only on a fifty-fifty on civil cases, and so reality is actually even easier to prove uh, in this case. And so. What I'm intrigued, what I'm interested to follow this case for is not only just how far the federal government go, but actually the power of the of the of the of the of the, of the court system in the United States to actually make this change. Like if like you know, what happens? I'm fascinated. What happens if you know if they get a yes uh, in the Ninth Circuit and then it goes to the Supreme Court and they fight it out there? You know, can, how strongly can the courts actually curtail emissions from a federal government that sort of run away? Um, and I, actually, I can actually answer this if I can break in for a minute. Sure. Uh, the Supreme Court of the United States has unlimited godlike power. Do you know how I know that? Wow. Because they can transform corporations into people, my <laughs> right. friend. They, yes. They have literally turned water into wine. Right. Uh, so this is this is petty magic. Right. This stuff. is easy. Exactly. This is this is uh, card trick stuff for them. Yeah. Um, well, exactly. And so so th- this is my so that's my thing is my thing is really actually how this will actually play out within the court system and and whether or not the courts will basically sort of uh, like I. I'm interested to see how the courts manage to either enforce this or abdicate responsibility. Because to me, this seems like a pretty open and shut case. But there's a lot more going on here. And actually, so, so to give sort of a sense of, of where we're at right now, sort of the history of this case, is it was filed under, again, it's been two and a half years. So it was filed against the Obama administration. Uh, and then the Trump administration picked it up. And of course, um, the, the Obama administration fought against it because the governments never want to be sued. Um, but the, the Obama administration did admit three things, which is interesting. They admitted that climate change is occurring, that it's caused by human activity, 
and that CO2 is above 400 parts per million, the highest level in a million years. So you've sort of already given up the fact that you know we're doing it, um, and and that you know and that it's bad. So the question left is the only question left in my mind is, in in this case then is is the government doing enough or not? Mm-hmm. That's that's what you're litigating if, if if you give up those three cases. And in a legal sense, that comes down to something like there was some interpretation of like due diligence, right? Because right. you can't the court couldn't say do unlimited things. I mean, you might say that that's justified to take right. unlimited mm-hmm. boundaries, but the courts would have to set some sort of precedent setting like this is what your this is what our interpretation of your responsibility would be but it would come exactly. down to some form of due diligence well, yeah it'd be a question of whether or not they're they're sort of meeting this sort of life and liberty and and and, and mm-hmm. property uh question right like how much what is what is their rights to that how is this infringing and that kind of question but to to sort of move slightly forward um trump administration came in uh so basically that was overturned in february that was overturned and then february 28th was when 2018 was when the trial was supposed to happen trump fought that uh basically basically part of their part of their pitch was that they didn't really necessarily agree with these three things um that climate change is occurring that it's caused by human activity or that the co2 level but and they could have changed this is this is a classic trump administration thing they could have actually changed their position but uh, th- but the government's attorney stated, "quote There is no direction from leadership." Uh, so they didn't. They, they they kept that part. That part stayed, even though they could have they, they could have made that switch if they wanted to. Um, and so and so the, so stepping forward, basically the, the so one of the court the, the magistrate judge Thomas Coffin of the District of Oregon um, uh, is 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 quoted as basically saying that uh, if the allegations in the complaint are believed, the failure to regulate the emissions has resulted in danger of c- constitutional proportions to public health. So that's the real the, the the word there that really pays attention to is constitutional proportions. That's the part where I think you could give us if the, if I was a judge, you could give yourself an out by saying it hasn't gotten that far yet. I right. guess you know, like if the but again, that's the that's the part that's the word that I think you have to pay attention to. Uh, another another example, if I may, yeah, uh, of the range of ability that that courts can have to interpret uh, things, and mm. in this case, I would actually uh, consider this a. Uh, caution, uh, a management of expectations. <laughs> yeah. uh, the Second Amendment, I believe, uh, holds for a, uh, a well-maintained militia right. to carry arms, and yet we see AR-15s uh, be in the hands of 18-year-olds. So there's a lot of room for interpretation. I'm just saying, just because they, just because this can be connected to a constitutional issue, and that can be proved to the satisfaction of the judge, does not mean that the uh, 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 discretion of that legal body might still in effect make it meaningless. Well, the wide interpretation of, you know, well, it, it, the first it was the I believe it was the first amendment, the free speech amendment that was used to make corporations people. Right. You know, like so these are the these are some of these things. Money like, equals speech, people are corporations. Yeah. And so so there's a lot of yeah, exactly there's a Pigs that, fly, hell freezes over, yeah, and, the whole it, list. Exactly. These are these are the these are the questions that we're having to be to be asking ourselves. And um and but this was important again is this that this is the suit uh this is the first time that the federal uh fossil fuel policies will be looked at in accordance to the constitution and its obligation to protect future generations. So this is really an example of future generations suing uh suing the government. But there's a twist. Um, and I, I, this is kind of this is fascinating, and it's it's interesting that it clearly, it it's one of those things that seemed like a good idea at the time, I'm sure, and then obviously was not. Which was that what, during the Obama administration, oil companies actually chose to join the case as defendants. They basically were added themselves as being sued. Um, they were like, actually, we want to be able because they wanted to be able to. Sort that of gives them, themselves. yeah, that gives them rights to then to, to be defend, part of the case. Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. But they actually added themselves into this case as, because because that was part of the conversation. Um, 
and and they were saying that they're calling the suit a direct threat to their business, and so they chose to join the Obama administration in a legal fight to protect their interests. Um, and, and so, um, although although they could not, unlike the like the U.S. government, admit or deny anything regarding climate change, stating a quote a lack of sufficient knowledge. Thanks, oil industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 obviously they've they've now decided this is a bad idea because they are now almost now they're trying once again now they're trying to actually to retreat from the case by withdrawing their names from the list of defendants, uh, but the judge has actually not yet granted their withdrawal. So they're now currently sort of stuck in this case. Um, and and what's interesting about them being stuck in this case is it actually it it undermines the whole case a little bit uh, of of the government because the plaintiffs are pointing out that this underscores the problem of industry and government collusion against public interest. You know, if you try to sue the government and a whole bunch of oil industry comes up and says, we'll help, we don't want, we, we want this. Right. But we're totally not with them. No, exactly. Yeah, we haven't been, we, we're not agreeing on everything, just we want to both fight this one case together. You're entering as a defendant in this sort of place. And it sort of, sort of shows this it, it, it's sort of being shown as proof of the feds and the, and the oil industry's continued exploitation of fossil fuels in full knowledge of, of possible climate catastrophe uh, will be presented at trial. And, and this is why I sort of teased Rex Tillerson, because he, he, uh, he does not escape this, this lawsuit. Uh, I think his name is probably everywhere, um, not only being left as Secretary of State. Well, it depends but, which name he signed. Remember, oh, ex- he's also a fan of pseudonyms. Well, his name, yeah, well, that's the thing. In this case, he's actually, his email says, quote, unquote, Wayne Tracker. I do like that name, actually. Yeah, though. Wayne that's, Tracker. It's a great, obviously fake name. Yeah, exactly, But it's like a yeah. pretty good one. Yeah. Um, or like uh, a really bad, uh, uh, you know, new writers, like character for, oh, like, yeah, exactly. for like an action book or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like in, in, in Rex Tillerson's like own fan fiction of himself as a cowboy, <laughs> he is Wayne Tracker. I bet it's like a, he's, he's probably written the whole thing. It's got like a space cowboy with like gas powered jet pack horse and stuff uh, it's, it's amazing I bet you sure. know he's such a boring person in public life I bet he's really creative privately <laughs> um, yeah so his emails so again he, as his love of pseudonyms his emails actually the plaintiffs are trying to get the, the his emails released that he sent as this Wayne Wayne tracker pseudonym uh, because they were sort of because uh, they sort of showed the level of of, of interdependence uh, between the government and, and the feds. Mm. Uh, but, of course, Exxon, uh, according to Inside Climate News, Exxon may have erased seven years of Wayne Tracker emails. So, uh, as to say, not to sound briefly like uh, like Republican, show me the emails. <laughs> right. What happened to all the emails, Republicans well, slash Wayne Tracker? A, a very common, and I hate to be playing the comparison game here, you know, want to make sure comparisons are fair but they just keep occurring to me you know a common uh not well i shouldn't say common um but a a strategy that has been attempted by some of the more despicable uh pro-life right-wingers is to like charge uh try and they were trying to pass bills which are entirely unconstitutional and were thrown out immediately but they still pass them or still tried to pass bills that would charge uh women who had aborted fetuses uh with murder on behalf of the unborn child. So this, I mean, this this would set that, that if they believe that uh, unborn people have rights that can be litigated as, uh, as alive people, as opposed to clusters of cells, then clearly future generations can sue oil companies for preventing them from being alive en masse. You would think this would just be an excellent example of that on steroids. Where's all the Where's all the Tea Party on this? Right, exactly. Where the pro-lifers, right? Right. Well, there's a man. The pro-lifers have a lot of. We didn't say pro-quality life. We just said technically alive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and you're on your own. Bootstraps. Yeah. Just give the baby a gun. 
so so yeah so this is where we're at like so this is so that's sort of where the the comes and the Trump admin could still theoretically uh, do another appeal of, uh, of to the full Ninth Circuit or the Supreme Court it hasn't done so and it appears even if they did so they'd likely fail so it looks as if this is going uh, going to trial and so uh, and, and and the judge who's presiding over again Judge Coffin has said quote this court is committed to trying to expedite this given this given the urgency of the issues presented which is good. Uh, you know, good for Judge Coffin. He's he's and he's talking about sort of doing this trial in two phases. Uh, the first is on the issue of liability. So the questions: Is climate change happening? Are there levels beyond which it's going to be irreversible or extraordinarily harmful? Is it human induced? Is the government responsible? And did the government cause any of it? And and are the plaintiffs' constitutional rights violated by what's happening in the terms of climate change? So a lot of that is basic science. A lot of that question is basically, okay, scientists, come and explain climate change to these judges who probably, you know, who hopefully will listen to it. And, and this, and I'm sorry to keep interrupting you, but this is like a really important point. When, when, when judges talk directly to scientists, things can happen. You know why? Because they both understand the same language of like specificity. So when a scientist says there is, you know, when when a uh, maybe a cross examiner might say, "Well, can you prove climate change is caused by humans?" and the and the scientist goes, uh, "Of course not, but there is a you know extremely high degree of probability." Everyone watching at home and Fox News amplifies, "Look how they're not sure." But that judge speaks science. They they speak technical professional language, and they understand that that is a yes. <laughs> right. And that's what that's why this is different, right? That's why this is different than an argument in the public square. This is different than than two different candidates uh having a campaign and and quote unquote referendum on the issue. This is an entirely different category of thing because even if they're a right-wing judge, as long as they're not actively corrupt, they're essentially forced to take certain actions and most of the time they do that's been my experience i'm not a law expert right. much less an american law expert yeah. but there have been many let me put it this way there have been many cases where a judge whose background would imply that their bias would go the other way has simply been like yeah i can't there's this is a lock solid case it's open shut next right you know, next yeah yeah yeah. it's not yeah there's a there's a there's less at least uh there's less room for interpretation in uh yeah and in, they have less freedom to use uh discretion in an issue like that like judges right. have a lot of discretion but there are certain areas where they don't have discretion right. and reinterpreting what a scientist said it as their testimony to say something other than what they said is not within their discretionary right. ability yeah yeah and so and so the real question here is that is that last question is is the government responsible and did the government well, is this responsible and did the go government cause any of it seems relatively obvious uh given that you know they are the ones in, in some way supporting and building this infrastructure uh but are the plaintiffs constitutional rights violated by what's happening in terms of climate change that's the last part of it that i would say is the question of whether if they're gonna if they're gonna sort of wiggle out of this that's the part they'll do so but to well killing them all all uh, uh severely prevents the right to buy arms or have free speech so <laughs> So she says, like, there you go. Um, so if and then if liability is found, it'll go to the second phase, which is the remedy phase of what happens. So that's the other thing. They could easily come through and say, yes, this happens. But then in the remedy phase, come up with a remedy that is that is weak enough that can't really be. Yeah, exactly. That's, like, that's the spot, which is the other part of it. Um, but at least there'll be sort of the moving forward on this on this on this version of at least trying to answer the question if they're responsible. And then you can always see, keep fighting the other pieces. Of right. It, and forward. potentially more importantly, setting precedent. Right, right. Exactly. So even if even if the judgment doesn't get any significant action, the precedent that it sets could lead to it. Yeah. Right. So that's like even if this, you know, even if we get a quote unquote victory, but it's weak sauce, mm -hmm. hold. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> More to come. Dot yeah. dot dot.
Yeah, uh, which allows me to sort of so with that sort of set, bring it back to the youth. So what what are all so this is an important thing to 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 highlight here, which is that this is actually part of. Uh, a larger, it seems, movement of 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 the youth to to uh, of of youth in America uh, to actually you know push the government in on social issues and to sort of and and really specifically to have their voices heard in in in, in the public space like to really force themselves in. Obviously, this was two and a half years ago, so it's it, it's a it's a part of the thing, but it also ties in pretty directly with uh, some of the activism that's coming out of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting uh, and the kids who are sort of doing the stu- the class walkouts and everything like that. Um, because our children's trust is also is not just sort of doing this one lawsuit. They're actually helping youth in Eugene, Oregon, bring the Eugene Climate Recovery Ordinance Law before City Council uh, to sort of again try to push youth in the courts to push this sort of fight. Um, and it's part of this year-long campaign that convinced the city to mandate specific emission reductions and reduce local fossil fuel consumption and prepare uh, a government uh, carbon budget based on Dr. James Hansen's prescription to return to CO2 levels to 350 degrees by 2100. And so they're really using the systems they have to force this thing forward. Um, and so I'll leave you with a, with a quote uh, from, uh, from one of the actual uh, Marjorie Stoneless Douglas uh, students. Uh, but I think it sort of ties up the, 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 the fight of all these sort of youth activists that are, that are involved in all the fights out there ever, uh, which is be a nuisance when it counts. Do your part to inform and stimulate the public to join your action. Be depressed, discouraged, and disappointed at failure and the disheartening effects of ignorance, greed, and corruption, and bad politics. But never give up. Go youth. There you go. Thank you very much, uh, Stefan. Sorry for eating up so much of your time. Uh, boy, I talked a lot for someone who didn't do any homework on that story. So uh, we're going to go now to uh, Megan. We'll be back with our uh, interview with TerraCycle. Don't go anywhere. You'll listen to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful community radio partners, and you, the podcast listener. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. And we are back. Thank you. Uh, you're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful community radio partners, and as well the podcast, which can be found along with all the show notes and everything that we talk about, at least everything I remember to write down that we talk about, uh, on the Green Majority website, which is at greenmajority.ca. Uh, so we're going to uh, go to our interview now. We have uh, Jessica Panetta from TerraCycle in the studio. Welcome to The Green Majority Studio, Jessica. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so we're, uh, as I was uh, mentioning uh, earlier, we've talked about recycling a little bit on this show, but not actually as often as someone might think. We usually get caught up with uh, an awful lot of climate change stuff. And and, and I think often, um, as with issues like, for instance, uh, energy efficiency, uh, recycling doesn't seem as sexy as big protests and stuff like that. And so I found over the last 10 years that I've been doing uh, the show that um, that those sort of more basic and in some ways more impactful, at least in the in the short immediate term, or at least more uh, issues that affect more individual decision uh, can sometimes be lost sight of. Uh, and so thank you for uh, poking uh, me to come on and, and talk about TerraCycle because it is uh, both an opportunity to learn about what you're doing, but also an opportunity to remind people that, hey, recycling is still cool and important. Um, so with that, essentially, if you would help me do a little bit of a, a better job explaining what TerraCycle is, they're a, a corporate recycler. They deal uh, largely with waste that is not being uh, already absorbed by other streams. So for instance, you're, so you complement, uh, for instance, I think it would be the right way to put it, the municipal stream. Um, so do we want to start by just uh, maybe doing a bit broader of a TerraCycle introduction and we'll get down into some specifics about how it actually works. Yeah, sure thing. So basically TerraCycle is um, a recycling company. We specialize in recycling items that are typically considered not recyclable. So anything that you think of as waste and garbage is actually um, what we specialize in recycling. 
And so can you give a couple of examples of things that people are not uh, maybe with thinking that they would not be able to put in their city bin that maybe you would in fact take? So a couple of examples of that. Yeah, sure thing. So um, so coffee capsules, a single serve coffee capsules, um, those you cannot recycle municipally, but we have several recycling programs for those. Um, even items that you think of as litter, you know, uh, cigarette butts, we actually can recycle those as well. Mm. And so a lot of the... Um, process uh, around that uh, seemed mystifying as I was uh, telling you in our pre-call it wasn't until I did in my interview with the city a couple years ago that I actually fully understood what recycling actually meant because I think I had the impression that I think a lot of people probably still have which is that you like scrub it out really well and then reuse it or something but so can you um, can you explain what that process actually looked like let's take the cigarette butts because that's a really interesting example what actually happens to it yep so with our cigarettes we actually collect a large volume of them and we shred them all up and separate them based on material composition so that leaves you with the paper tobacco and ash which is composted and the filter is actually made out of a plastic called cellulose acetate so then we process that into these little recycled pellets and then use those plastic pellets in manufacturing new products and so those products might include things as uh, like park benches picnic tables industrial shipping pallets items like those and um, do you do you find there's a lot of uh, there's demand? Obviously, there is demand for that. You have a, a business model on it. TerraCycle is not a small company. Um, is there uh, some any comment you can make on the perhaps like is that a, a growth market? Not just the not just the consumption. Obviously, there's always new things that can be recycled. Uh, but is the output are those park benches in high demand? Uh, yeah, so I mean, unfortunately, there's a huge problem with waste, so there is a lot to be recycled. Um, so there, there's definitely a demand for, for recycling, but also, you know, using recycled plastics and manufacturing new products instead of using virgin plastics. So there definitely is an increasing demand for both. So per, um, perhaps you can uh, to comment on the uh, education aspect of what you're doing. Again, you're dealing with things that most people would automatically think couldn't be reused. So um, I, I guess there, there's essentially two different questions there, but with the same uh, precursor, which is uh, what sort of education do you find if you're finding a new client or maybe developing a new business relationship? Uh, what sort of learning um, do they generally do? Is that something you would usually instigate, go to someone and say, hey, we think we could do something with stuff you're throwing out? Or would they usually uh, call you? Like, what does that relationship generally look like? Yeah, so usually we reach out to various companies. So we'll notice, we'll take note of different products that are, are not recyclable, and we reach out to those companies to let them know and to see if they're interested in partnering with, with us to actually create a recycling program. And then so the, the output then, so we've, we've got the pellets, which then could be turned, I'm assuming you're not doing the turning into them into benches. That would be a, a, a client of yours that would be doing exactly, that. Exactly, yeah. Um, so is, the, uh, is there education done uh, on behalf of yours, or is that largely something that your clients would deal with as far as uh, finding outputs? Are you like reaching out to city or your clients reaching out to cities and saying, hey, but we, hey we'd love to build you a bunch of benches. We've got a warehouse full of these pellets. Uh, what does that part of that conversation look like? So we specialize in, in, in the recycling of it. So actually, once we have all the recycled pellets, then we sell them to those to third-party manufacturers. So they are the ones who focus more on the, what create what they create out of them. So one of the, um, uh, around the actual repurposing, and we talked about cigarette butts and, and stuff, was there another, uh, an example maybe you could give of something where it was a unique challenge or maybe something that just you got, where you or recently a client was found for a new product that you hadn't, that you can uh, talk a little bit more detail of just about, about that, or if not a, a new one, just like an, an interesting example of... Uh, 
maybe an application that was really novel or something. Yeah, sure. So actually this past year we um, came up with this really innovative recycling idea of actually using um, beach plastics. So it's a global project. Um, so we worked with a bunch of different organizations who would collect these rigid plastics from shorelines and they were very degraded and full of sand and, um, and typically not recyclable. So we collected that on a large global scale and then we actually recycled that into, um, into a new product. So we used that to create a new head and shoulders bottle with Procter & Gamble. Um, so taking an item that's literally seen as waste um, washed up on the shore and using that as an input to create new products. Do um, is there has there been any um, uh, roadblocks do you find? Like I, I know a lot of time we'll talk to companies who are doing uh, innovative things in the environment space, whether that has to do with recycling or, or biofuels or something like that. And I'll, I'll, sometimes there won't be an answer, but there is often um, uh, an example of, well, you know, what we're doing was really great and, and a lot of people are, don't really want to get into public policy or anything like that. And so I understand if you have no comment, uh, but is there like without making it antagonistic, is there an area where you think public policy um, could be like improved to make it uh, maybe just as far as being more open to accepting these types of products? But do you know, is there is there do you think room for improvement without necessarily name calling anybody? Um, well, there's definitely room for improvement at every level. Um, so, you know, even at the consumer level, being aware of what's recyclable and what's not, um, and, you know, putting it where it goes, uh, you know, at, for, you know, cities, maybe opening up new waste streams to municipal recycling, and then, you know, um, yeah, just it, I think there, there could be improvements at every level. Yeah. Is, the, is there room for, do you think, um, like consumer advocacy and this sort of thing? Like, is this uh, a matter, like I, I totally understand the position of, uh, uh, you know, a company who like, okay, we have, there's an opportunity, we're making use of that opportunity, we have an ethical business model, that's great. They're not necessarily into it because even though there's obviously environmental benefit and all that stuff, they didn't necessarily start that company because they want to change the world. They're starting a company that's, you know, makes them feel good that it's ethical and that's a way for them to make money. So what do you think the role of the individuals might be if they're, if this is something they're really interested in or more concerned in? Is there something if they're not a, uh, if they're just sitting at home listening right now where there's something that they could uh, do if they wanted to help this maybe there's some uh, some folks that you work with who like advocate for uh, these types of things or just maybe being talking to their local government or I don't know any, any comment on that what can an individual person might be able to do if they're interested in this yeah definitely well so you can go on our website terracycle.ca um, we have a wide range of recycling programs there so you know you can participate in them and help to divert waste rather than sending them to landfill you know you could speak to um, you know any local stores or retailers or any anywhere in your area that you think might benefit from these programs. Uh, maybe there's a lot of cigarette litter, litter in your city or your neighborhood. You can maybe talk to them as well about recycling that. Um, so there's definitely plenty of plenty of things that everyone, everyone can do. And the first place to check out would be terracycle.ca. Right okay. Um, so I think the, uh, unless you had anything else, I think that's uh, everything. So if people wanted to uh, check out more uh, about TerraCycle, I guess most uh, professional people would be interested, would be potential clients. So maybe if you have a company that has a, a waste stream, you could uh, uh, contact you or just for more general information. Yeah. Uh, so if you want to just give the website, you can do that. Yep. So www.terracycle.ca. That's great. I think uh, everything we have. So, uh, Megan, do you want to go? Uh, we'll get to the second uh, music break as well. Um, Stefan, uh, I know we have a little bit more uh, news coming up after yeah. the break. I don't know if you wanted to tease Totally, that. yeah. We're coming up with – so we're talking about all things fish, which we don't really cover that often. I feel like we we have our hobby horses, and, and often fish don't really f flow into this one, if you'll accept <laughs> the water pun there. Uh, but, yeah, we there's actually – there's, A, a really cool tracking uh, device that's been created to follow along and understand uh, where all of the 
uh, all the fishing occurs in this in, in the world, which again is is massive. Fifty five percent of the world has some fishing happening on them uh, because again the oceans are big. But yeah, fifty five percent of the world has is is being fished at some point. Uh, and and it, for a very long time, this was sort of impossible to know exactly how this worked. Right, you didn't really understand the who and where these things were. So there's this new uh, new tool that came out uh, to help you do that. And then if you then read that, listen to this article or listen to this, this little thing and think to yourself, well, then you know what the answer is instead of overfishing is that we should is that we should farm the fish. Well, guess what? That's also problematic. <laughs> so I'm sorry, world. Uh, you have to think more deeply about how you get your fish because two stories coming up, neither of them are, neither of them make you want feel great about eating fish. Uh, but... There, you know, there's. You, you there's started things. out on. You started out on a bit of a high note today, Seven. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now we're getting into me yelling at everyone for eating fish. Right. So, <laughs> we'll enjoy that in a minute. Uh, that and more. You're listening to the Green Majority here on CIUT to 9.5 FM. We'll be uh, right back in just a moment. Uh, Megan, our second and final music break. We've got uh, Do Make Say Think, Toronto band. This is her story of glory. All right, we are back here listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners internationally, but particularly, we're a little biased, across Canada. Yeah. Uh, and as well as our podcast, which is available to anyone, bias-free, at greenmajority.ca. Uh, we have a little bit more news this week, and then as I teased earlier, I'm breaking a rule, because rules were made to be broken, uh, which, uh, as I said, which is that we don't generally promote local events, because a significant amount of you are not listening live uh, here in Toronto. Uh, but uh, as Jen figured out, the best way to get me to break that rule is to invite me to be part of the event. Isn't that right, Jen? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, so Jen Lee is uh, uh, primarily a... Uh, I, I don't know if I wanted to uh, describe you just a, as a, a dancer slash activist. Doesn't you can. Right. can you introduce yourself and do a better job? Dancer slash activist is a pretty sweet combo, though. Yeah, and it's definitely dancer slash activist, <laughs> and not the other way around. <laughs> dance activist. Dance activist. Dance activist. Dance activist. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I just uh, I'm a dancer, and I've been working to solve some public indifference in the cultural community. Yeah. So the event is uh, themed around uh, the fact that it's uh, World Water Day. Uh, not today, right? My calendar reminder. March 22nd. The 22nd. Oh, thank God. <laughs> uh, just, I, you know, then it's, uh, forget someone's birthday. Anyway. Uh, so it's coming. The event is, uh, the event is actually uh, next week. You're here to talk to us uh, today. And what I think really got me interested uh, because... You know, we're friends, but I have lots of friends. Friends invite me to do stuff. I think what would I the reason I said yes was uh, primarily because this was something that seemed really unique, not just in the sense that the event sounds really cool and I know it's going to be cool, uh, but because it's a thing that I haven't seen. Essentially, it's a it's an event about the environment, but it's not really for the environment community. It's for mm. the dance community, and it's um, a little bit of reflection that you've gathered from your wider interests that you uh, wanted to apply uh, to your art. And I think it's uh, now that I uh, know all the behind the scenes and everything like that, I think it's turning out to be a really uh, beautiful uh, vision. Um, but I would like you to describe uh, to the listeners what exactly is going to be happening, and, and more importantly, like where this is coming from for you. What do you what do you want yeah. to do? Well, thank you. I am honored to be on the show. Um, you've been doing an excellent job at expressing the systemic injustices, you know, tying in the Reconciliation Act from the previous shows and topics of colonization to climate change. Um, just recognizing that those uh, environmental conditions that we're put under and any other conditions that we're forced to live under is against our human rights. So. Um, I'm here to, with that said, 
talk about my event. I'm holding an event called Don't Kill My Flow, and that's the first annual arts campaign to change our relationship with water. See, I'm a dancer and I'm a graphic designer, but I'm not, you know, driven to be the best dancer or the graf best graphic designer. I'm driven by public indifference. Um, so I've noticed um, that we're numb to our lifestyle. I work at a dance community, a dance studio, and many water bottles are used. <laughs> um, and why is it the question popped in my head that people still use it when it's harmful to the environment. Um, so climate change is not an earth problem. It's a human problem. In this era, it is. And you know, if it's a human issue, why not have art convey what it is that we're dealing with? Um, so I know that we're shape, you know, we're seeing a major shift of information in this world. So, and that, you know, there's a lot of information around and we either know a lot or we know, and with that, with that comes that we don't also know a lot either. Um, so we fear that our values can wrong us. And this event um, taking place on World Water Day is to use performance, art, and creative discussion to shift people's perspective on their uh, relationship to water. Um, so how do you make the environment sexy? or cool. You do it with art. You do it with community. And so we're having community engagement with indigenous people, activists, artists, um, that would, yeah, that it's to suggest that art can lead with shared values and beliefs. Um, and that would be the primary way of changing our lifestyle and our environment. And there, there's a couple. Of, there's a couple of things that to me really stand out as unique about the event um, because uh, you know Stefan and I have been to combined well over you know 100 events. I think is fairly safe to say. Who knows? Um, <laughs> it's a number with at least two zeros. Oh yeah. Um, and uh, and so something. Two things that really stood out for me as unique about the event that you're putting together, Jen. And, and I think this is you know the, as much as I was joking about my rule breaking. I think there really is sort of value here to talk about for the wider audience and not just sort of getting a cheat in for the local audience here. Um, is that is to point those two things out. So one of them was that you know if primarily your focus uh, the the the. The output, you know, if you will, the the uh, uh, the deliverable, if you will, from the event is primarily to get, uh, among other things, but primarily to get you know dancers to think about uh, artists or uh, artists, sorry, to, uh, more generally to think about you know, not using plastic bottles. But you're not doing that by having a campaign or an event centered around not using bottles. You have a, a campaign and event centered around promoting appreciation, understanding, and thinking about the cultural and inherent value of water, which is, I think, a much more constructive and a much more useful and a much more impactful way of going about uh, addressing that problem. Yeah, um, we, we're just dealing with a lot of information. Uh, we're addicted to information, and, and with that, like I said, I feel that we know a lot, and we also know very little. Um, and we fear that our values will wrong us. And that is why artists, you know, spend so much time doing, investing in themselves as their own work and in their own experience as their own work um, because their values. And I really, <clears throat> I want to tie back to, um, I mentioned indigenous people will be there because cultural value plays a significance on, on the environment as well. 
And the, the other thing that really stood out for me as unique as well is that um, uh, it's uh, half for performance. <laughs> uh, you know, mm. I've been to a lot of things about very important topics and, and they're very important and I, and I generally learn things and, and I feel like, you know, there's a degree I think of showing up an event of like, you know, here's my, my thing I did this week that helped. You know, and it, maybe it was just be there to show support, but I my my thing of contribution. Um, but the, there's also the promise of being amazed and entertained and enlightened by the actual artists themselves, not just talking about it, but doing it. So we have a bunch of speakers and uh, and and stuff planned, intermixed with performances, yeah, yeah, which is yeah. really great. We have um, a Ray John Jr., who's an elder from London, uh, from the Oneida Nation. We have you on speaking speaking and facilitating amazing discussions on why it is that we use bottled water uh, and those are hard conversations right those are only conversations that exist in the communities that make it safe in the artists artist community <laughs> um, and i have myself i'm going to be speaking at the event there's four performances one contemporary one popping and waving uh, a hoop dancer and as well as a did i say contemporary so zook brazilian zook dancers will be there as well so we'll uh, do you want to just let people know what the the website is remind them the date and the place if they're in toronto yes so you can find our facebook page on facebook.com slash don't kill my flow march 22nd is on world water day and this event is taking place at 180 shaw street that's 180 shaw street in toronto yeah. And if you're uh, if you're not in Toronto, you're not able to come. There is some uh, interesting information. Uh, some people that are working uh, for you, uh, volunteering with you, uh, have been putting out some interesting stories on social media that are generally positive. So if you mm -hmm. want a break from our content that's no, almost unanimously uh, miserable, check out uh, <laughs> Don't Kill My Flow uh, Instagram and Twitter. There's been some interesting story, uh, some fun story, uh, story sharing there, uh, sh sharing there as well. Uh, and aside from that, um, thanks for inviting me. I th I'm really excited. I think oh, it's gonna be thank great you event. so much for being a part of it I wouldn't have chosen a better I couldn't have chosen a better host oh, go on I'm uh, sitting right here yeah <laughs> You get the other events done. All right, fine. Uh, so, but speaking of which, though, that was also my way of saying that we have to we have to move to our stories. But Jen, you're going to stay in the studio. So, I if will. you feel uh, so inspired to jump in, I I publicly giving you permission to do so. Uh, but with that qualification, I'm going to pass it back to Stefan. Yeah. So, well, no high teas. It's a it's excellent that we are have a don't kill my flow because there's a whole bunch of water stories. I'm going to try to run through, uh, see as many as I can get to. Uh, but starting with this this really cool initiative um, that is that is tracking. Uh, 70,000 fishing ves uh, vessels uh, which have been hiding from, hidden from public eye until now and so this is this is huge. Uh, it's it's in it's it's a it's a study that's been going on for the last four years, uh, or actually, well, actually went from 2012 to 2016, and now they're visualizing it, which I think should really already just simplify how much work this is. Is that you can take four years to gather the information, and it still takes a year and a half to visualize and actually provide it in a way that people can actually do something with it. Um, and and you know, 70,000 fishing vessels is not is 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 is. is uh, is nothing to sneeze at, obviously. Um, and so these are, uh, it takes advantage of a new technology development in automatic identification signals uh, that a vessel transmit to basically say where it is. Um, and it's being used uh, in the international efforts like Global Fishing Watch to track in slick scale, uh, the scale of fishing at sea. And and so this is a ton of information um, that is sort of that is sort of going on, um, and and get, helps I think put into context the scope that fishing is 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 really doing in our in world. Because again, I think 
I think it's easy because it's a, a, the out of sight, out of mind uh, problem that exists in almost all environmental issues is, I think, even further uh, exists within ocean with, when you're on the ocean because there's so much space and there's so it's so out of sight that it's so easy to forget how big these space are and how lively these ecosystems are and everything like that. You know, it's like if there was a mile long garbage uh, garbage thing that floated across land into people's houses, that like they would stop that. <laughs> but they're just not. But that is definitely that. that exists in the oceans right like it's so exists. large that you can be in it and most of it is still out of sight and out of mind well exactly yeah yeah <laughs> like it takes i think it takes days to, to actually go through this thing it's it's uh, it's absolutely uh, huge these 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 oh these these garbage currents that exist in that exist in the in the in the oceans um and so and so i think that so what's part of the value of this is it really helps you understand the scale at which we're talking about the scale of the fishing industry we're talking about and helps you sort of understand some so, so i'm going to throw out a couple numbers to give people an idea in 2016 alone fishing vessels logged 40 million hours of fishing activity um and which equates to about 19 billion kilowatt hours of energy used uh, and and so, like these numbers are, uh, I, I I struggle to sort of contextualize these numbers because they're so big. Like, what does nineteen billion kilowatt hours really mean, right? Um, but but that that fifty five. But the, what I mentioned earlier, the the fact that fishing occurs over at least fifty five percent of the planet, um, is 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 really something that 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 I think stands out, um, and 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 makes us understand this. And so. The, the these are some of the and some of the other information that comes out of these sort of four years of data is that um, is that each day uh, there's about a hundred thousand to three hundred thousand hours of commercial fishing every single day. So it's only commercial fishing, let alone all this sort of the other types of fishing that go on. Um, and all this information is important to understand um, to uh, to really get a sense of just how big everything is happening. And and so these these will be linked. So if you want to go, it's, it's, there's actually is this live tracking web. You, you can go and actually sort of watch where all these vessels are uh, live. Uh, well, they'll be po the, where you can do so will be posted on uh, on the website. Mm -hmm. uh, it's globalfishingwatch.org is the is the name. And and you can sort of see these hot spots of areas where fishing is happening. And you get a sense of the you know like if you go on right now, you find out there are currently five million seven hundred and fifty three and four hundred and one vessels in the water right now. Um, Are you watching it live right now? I'm watching it live right now. This is like this is the kind live of live tweet the fishing vessels. Stephen. Yeah, you can find out and and you, and you can sort of zoom in and find out new information and everything like that. So it's like if you want to get a sense of just the scale of the fishing uh, industry that exists right now today and where it's concentrated and stuff like that, you can learn so much just by even sort of going through this this amazing visualization that exists. Um, uh, but then to and so. So what's interesting about that is that like this is obviously important to be considering how often we've we've failed to protect the these the fishing ecosystems. You know, the 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 Atlantic cod is perhaps the most famous example here in Canada of just us basically failing to understand how much fishing is going on and and what and, and what a reproduction rate is and ha and that entire industry collapsed. Right. And, and 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 the most important co uh, uh, corollary lesson there too is people were you know at one point uh, said well you know what. what what are we supposed to do? Stop! People will be out of work.
work. Yeah, and now then they were out work. of work, and there were no fish. Yeah, um, and that's not to. I mean, that this is simply the human experience. So we're not taking a shot at uh, any individual or any group or any problem. This isn't about that. This is how humans react to stuff, and we have to be better at managing our own failings and not letting the person complaining about their job say, "Look, we're going to have to pay to get you another job." Yeah, but this is just a thing we can't do now. I'm sorry. Or or even and, just, and, or, and help the person out. Yeah, but, or, or but, just less. Right. Like, like, yeah. like there's a there's a way to you know. It's not that fishing is. It's not like no. Not that fishing is inherently unsustainable. It is that the way we are currently doing it is unsustainable. Right. Uh, and and there are ways to sort of to, to to look at it in different ways. And if your only argument against it is someone might lose their job, then that's a, not a good answer. Not because not because to to hell with that person, but because the answer then is find them another job. Well, not well, do it anyway. Right. Yeah. Because what are we going to do? Well, and then also you're only you're you're, you're short term thinking it. Right. You're you're saying fine. This person needs a job today. Uh, but when we destroy the entire industry they're a part of, yeah, then we're going to have a whole different problem. We're having an um, entire province, for instance, of people who <laughs> now well, are Well, in reality, we're almost doing it twice to the same set of people. There's a very quick digression, but like, when you <laughs> think about the fact that like, there's a whole bunch of people on the East Coast who were for, who after the, who had to leave their job, who lost their job when the, when the, when the COD, uh, when, when, the Atlantic Cod sort of collapsed, who then were sort of, and then the young people there were then decided their next solution was to move to Alberta for the oil sands. We're just basically moving the same set, like the same gener type of location of people around into unsustainable practice, unsustainable practice, uh, instead of finding them a way to give them a sort of a, an ongoing way of life. We're just sort of we're completely disregarding their their needs uh, while fighting as if like no they need jobs so yes right. they need jobs we need jobs that they that we don't have to remove from them or that the earth won't remove from them in five years because we're unsustainably fishing these things but I just want to I want to quickly transition from from the sort of global fishing uh, and the and the more and, the, and wild fishing because in, in also fishing the wild is, is 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 a very very large thing. But as as we get further and further along this road of of people being concerned about fishing ecosystems and everything like that, the the solution from industry really is to move towards uh, is towards fish farming, which makes you know again which from a from a high level perspective see, makes all the sense. Right? It's like, well, we need to make sure the ecosystems are, are the, the, the natural ecosystem is left alone, so we'll condense and dense and create much more dense uh, places for these fish to live where we can then harvest them easily, X, Y, Z uh, reasons. And, and if you're curious as to why that's problematic, you don't really have to look much further than all of the th reasons why factory farms are, are problematic, which is that if you massively condense a whole bunch of, of living beings uh, into a small space, suddenly the need for, um, you know, the need for uh, different ways that like antibiotics goes up, the need for ways to protect, you know, and suddenly you're, you're having to, you're having to manufacture a whole ecosystem for them in a very much smaller space and that they are, they're living in their own, in their own issues. Um, and, and one of the, an example of this actually is in BC, uh, this was flagged uh, for us by our by who I continue to call our BC correspondent Deirdre. Um, it's a new thing. It's a new thing. Uh, was is that there's currently an ongoing c question about the threat to wild salmon that are actually coming from from fish farms, which is that there's, there's the government has confirmed that there's a virus in blood discharge pouring into BC waters, and the virus That's, is hold coming on, from. Hold, you're talking fast. That sounds terrifying. Yeah, yeah. The video is bad. Okay. Um, but basically, so I'm not posting the video. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to post the video. Okay. It's uh, it's it's it sort of just looks like a plume underwater, obviously. But basically, what they did is they they had some scientists actually go underwater to 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 see where the to literally find the location where these where the blood that is coming from these factory farms is being sort of put 
put back into the oceans, which already sounds ridiculous, but is a thing that's happening. Um, and and it's got, it, the footage has caught attention of government scientists who confirm the presence of a highly contagious uh, Piscine reovirus, or PV, PRV, uh, which can infect many, many sick and wild salmon. Um, and now the fish farm industry is saying that they are disinfecting their blood, but as as these tests sort of prove, they are they are not doing a very good job, or not at all. Um, uh, John Waring of the David Suzuki Foundation is quoted as saying, "quote There is no disinfection taking place." Mm-hmm. Um, now the, the the pushback from that on the BC Farmers Association is saying that they think that PRV is a quote relatively harmless virus. Um, and and that there are you know there are millions of viruses in the oceans and most of them are harmless is, is the, sort of the pitch. Uh, and while with, we're at, while we're at it, uh, carbon dioxide is good for plants. <laughs> well, it, it is it is one of those things where it's like like I don't know enough to say whether or not that is true or not, but it definitely seems like if the if the regulation is that you are uh, that you are disinfecting it and you've proven you're not, and your response isn't no, we'll do better, but actually it shouldn't have you shouldn't have made to do so in the first place. Right. That's not a good place to start. Well, it's, yeah, like it, you're it, sort of starting already admitting you're not doing the thing that the government is telling you to do and then trying to pretend that it doesn't matter rather than saying we'll do the thing that we're supposed to do. It's, it's a defensive response as opposed to a uh, constructive response. That's really all I was trying to point out. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so and, and what's, what's concerning here is that uh, that the December 2017 report from the Committee on the Status of Endangered Wildlife in Canada is saying that BC's sockeye salmon stocks are flirting with extinction um, and need an at-risk delegation. And so these are folks that are these are these are the fish that are sort of could be the ones who are being who are dealing with this this virus are already sort of hurting in part due to the fact that the, that the, this virus. And so scientists aren't really certain how PRV affects wild salmon. Uh, but activists say that dropping virus-infected effluent in the middle of a fish migration route may not be the responsible choice, which is that's the, like, I love, I love, I'm gonna read that again, because I think it's, I, everyone, I love understating sometimes. Oh, this, yes. This is such a good oh, understating. Yes. So this is the, the, the full line again. Scientists aren't certain about how PRV affects wild salmon, but activists say that dropping virus-infected effluent in the middle of a fish migration route may not be the responsible choice. <laughs> I, 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 the activists aren't aren't saying it is not. They're, we should consider that you know dropping blood on the like, virus infected blood on the fish is not a great idea. Here's an idea: Have you considered not doing that? <laughs> yeah, uh, and and the, the final quote uh, is that uh, there's no reason in this day and age with the technology we have that we should be allowing this to take place. Which I think is basically the setting here, which is whether or not you think this is this virus is 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 harmless. Why would we risk it? You're, you're dealing with at-risk population. It's it's it just don't let this blood go into the water in this place. Like it just fix that. Um, and and so someone so at least there's some way we can eat salmon in a way that doesn't make me feel bad, which at this point seems increasingly difficult. <laughs> Thank you for that, Stefan. We are out of time. I do appreciate uh, all your heavy uh, lifting uh, today on the show. Appreciate that. Thank you, uh, Jen, also for coming in and joining us. And uh, I'm sure you want to let people know not to forget to check out Don't Kill My Flow on Facebook uh, as well. Don't Kill My Flow is sponsored by Artscape, our event sponsor. Oh, yes. Which I forgot to mention. Thank you (laughs) so much, Artscape, for doing that for us. Thank you. And we'll see uh, everyone who can get there there uh, next week. Check out Don't Kill My Flow on Facebook as well. Uh, And thank you to the listener and to our techs and everyone else who I can uh, forgot to thank. Uh, uh, Yes. Enjoy the week. We'll see you soon.